Uh, it's really good to be with you this morning um, to see what God has done. Uh, I think the <clears throat> one of the earliest connections I had with Trinity Church was when it was just a, a, a team of people gathered in uh, John and Amy's living room, and that was the whole church. And uh, look what God has done. <laughs> And it's, it's great to be a part of that and to see a part of that. I want to begin this morning by telling you the story of a group of people who got ambushed uh, by the Holy Spirit 300 years ago. It was actually just shy of 300 years ago, about five years shy. In the early 1700s, there were in Germany a number of Protestant believers who were suffering persecution. Because at that particular time, um, if you didn't have the same approach to your faith as the ruler of wherever you were living, you could be put in prison or worse. And so they were having a lot of difficulty because they weren't Catholic. And... So there was a, uh, one uh, political leader, a count, who his name was Count Zinzendorf, and he was a sympathizer. He was not a Catholic, and he invited them to come to his area, which was an area of Germany uh, called Moravia. And he invited them to come, and he gave them land, and he said, you can build a new community here, and you can worship as you wish and you know live in peace carry on your businesses or whatever it, however you're supporting yourselves and raise your families and uh, you can come here and do that here and so people started to gather there from all over other parts of Germany where they weren't uh, so welcome but when they got there and they started putting things together and started worshiping together it wasn't long until they found themselves disagreeing about things. They didn't quite have the same view about how often they should have communion and exactly what it meant. And they didn't exactly agree on the order that the service on Sunday should go. And, well, you can imagine, right? You know, all the things that Christians can find to disagree about. And, you know, it got worse and worse, and it wasn't long till they started polarizing. I mean, they literally got to the point where they were calling each other sons and daughters of the devil. So it turns out that polarization is not just a modern problem or an American problem. <laughs> it can happen to anybody. And so... It got so bad that the count heard about it and he was pretty upset because this is not what he bargained for. Now, you have to remember, he was not really a pastor. He wasn't a clergyman. He was a politician. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, he ended up coming and preaching to them over a number of weeks, basically rebuking them for their selfishness and their pride which was what was underneath all their difficulties. 
And as a result, some of them, a few of them, began together late at night and pray and ask God to help them. God, you need to help us. We're, we're, we're in a pickle here. And so they began to pray. And then on Sunday morning, August 13th, 1727, very big day, they were gathered together, well, much like we are. They were worshiping the Lord, and the Spirit was poured out in the middle of the worship. And poured out in such a way that the people leading the worship were unable to continue. They could not even speak words. And they began to fall on their knees, and some of them were like laid out in the front, um, shaking, and then it began to you know, hit other people in the room. The power of God was so strong upon them, people were crying out loud, and some people were falling down and shaking. And they wrote about it after the fact. And uh, I'd like to read to you what they wrote because it's so powerful. Now, it's obviously, they wrote it in German, and so this is a translation, but it's still very powerful. Verily the 13th of August 1727 was a day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We saw the hand of God and his wonders and we were all under the cloud of our fathers, baptized with their spirit. The Holy Ghost came upon us, and in those days, great signs and wonders took place in our midst. From that time, scarcely a day passed, scarcely a day passed, but while we beheld his almighty workings amongst us. A great hunger after the word of God, took possession of us so that we had to have three services every day. Namely, at 5 in the morning, at 7.30 in the morning, and at 9 in the evening. Those of you praying for revival, take note. <laughs> A great hunger after the word of God. Everyone, he says, desired above everything else that the Holy Spirit might have full control. Full control. Self-love and self-will, as well as all disobedience, disappeared. And an overwhelming flood of grace swept us all out into the great ocean of divine love. They experienced this flood of grace from the Lord, filled with love. And they began to repent to one another and make their relationships right. As he said, all self-will and disobedience disappeared. All that mattered was that he would have full control. One other person wrote, we left the house of God that day hardly knowing whether they were that we belonged to earth or had already gone to heaven. That's a breaking in of the kingdom of God. That's when God comes. But their experience didn't end on that day. 
It led to a long walk, a long path of keeping in step with the Spirit. Because what immediately began to happen in the immediate aftermath is God began to move around among them. And every day they saw things happening. They started a prayer meeting, a 24-hour-a-day prayer meeting, where they took turns signing up for a time on the clock so that the prayer meeting would never cease, that it would run every day, 24 hours a day, and never stop. Everybody took a part. And that prayer meeting, folks, lasted for over a century without stopping. That's multiple generations that were touched by God. In the prayer meeting, at first it was God convicting them about their relationships and their passion and for Jesus, you know, whether, you know their, their self-will that was getting in the way. But then he began to speak to them in the prayer meetings about the forgotten people of the world. You see, the spirit of God is the same spirit that we hear about when Jesus talks about the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one that's lost. And so God began to speak to them about people that nobody else was thinking about. And the first on their list were the African slaves in the Caribbean. That's that they were the top of the Holy Spirit's list for them to consider. And I, you know, I don't know how much you know about the conditions on the sugar plantations in the Caribbean, but they were about as horrific as anything ever contrived by man. Life expectancy there was generally less than five years. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, a number of their people determined we will go there to share the love of Christ with those people. These plantation owners did not think this was a good idea. They said, uh, you cannot come. We don't want you to come. We won't let you preach to our slaves. Because, of course, if you preach the love of Christ to them, they won't be thinking like slaves anymore, will they? They said, we will come even if we must sell ourselves into slavery to get there. At which point I think that they, the plantation owners backed down. I don't think they actually had to go through with it. In the end, quite a number went. I think it was anywhere from 10 to 20 people minimum that were called to the Caribbean to share the love of Christ, of whom less than five returned alive. Then God began speaking to them about the indigenous people of North America, and they, were, they began to send people to the southeastern part of the United States where the uh, Cherokee and the Chickasaw people were living at that time. And interestingly, uh, on one of the their voyages across the Atlantic to go to those people, there was a big storm. And uh, the storm was quite serious and it scared everybody on board, including the sailors, everybody except the Moravians, who, you see, having basically died to themselves already, had nothing left to lose and nothing to fear. And there was a young man on that boat 
who observed their faith. His name was John Wesley. And that put him on his own journey with the, towards the Holy Spirit, which led to the founding of the Methodist Church, which has had an untold impact around the world. Then the Lord began speaking to them about the people in Africa and then about the Muslims in the Middle East. And on it went for over a century. They sent people and sent people and sent people and sent people to all the lost and forgotten ones of the world. I don't know what you, but it makes my heart burn. Like, you know, we invite the Spirit of God. But when he comes, he doesn't come to decorate our lives or to bring a little Christian entertainment into the picture. He comes to take over. And he's not safe because he is a sending spirit. He sends us. Some, of course, obviously stayed and prayed for over a century. But they began to experience this long walk over a long time of letting the Holy Spirit have full control. You know, one of the challenging things has been that it seems that God moves in the church, but then so quickly the church seems to slide back into apathy or just human effort. And that sense of the immediacy and the presence of God seems to disappear. That hunger for God, that tenderness towards God gets lost, and pretty soon we're bickering again. Why is that? And I think it's because we have to continually, continually, again and again, choose to give the Holy Spirit full control over our lives. It's not enough to begin with the Spirit. We have to walk with him the whole way. Keep in step with the Spirit. It's not enough to have had an experience in the past. It's not enough to have had a legacy. We have to choose today to let him have full control. And sometimes that means coming to the end of ourselves. For me, that's how it went. Before I could enter into anything like all of that, I had to come to the end of my own efforts and my own strength. You know, I, wanted, I, I went through uh, about a four-year period of extreme depression because I was trying to plant a church and it was failing. And I'd never failed before. And it felt like God wasn't with me and he wasn't near me. And it's sort of like, what did I do wrong? You see, I thought that the church plant was the project. Turned out I was the project. And the name of the project was bring him to the end of himself so that God could be magnified. You see, when we just go get by by what we can do, how does God get magnified by that? What God has in mind for you, hear me, what God has in mind for you is that you should live a life 
that cannot be explained by you. A life beyond human explanation. A life that demands that people ask, how could that be? And the only answer is, because Jesus is alive. And so we must come to the end of ourselves, and then we have to give ourselves back to him. Give full control over to him. When we started our church 45 plus years ago, I guess it's now 47, because I'm kind of moving into the retirement stage of life. Um, we've considered ourselves a renewal church. And part of that was because we worshiped with guitars. That made us radical. And we stopped dressing up for church on Sunday morning. That was a wonderful breakthrough. You know, and we believed that the Holy Spirit was accessible, although we weren't exactly sure how that would work or what we were getting into. And, you know, the funny part was it wasn't very long till we found ourselves in need of renewal ourselves. And so we began to pray and ask God to bring renewal. We didn't even know what we were praying for. But there was a day that came for us very much like the Moravians, where on one Saturday evening, when we were all gathered together, the spirit came and uh, it was frightening um, because it was, it was so powerful. And uh, at first I thought, you know, is this God or is this the devil? I wasn't sure at first, like what, what is happening to us? But then people started confessing their sins and getting right with one another. I thought, that can't be the devil. <laughs> this must be God. And we were meeting as a group of leaders, and there was a prophetic word that came out, and the words said this. Okay, you've got the revival you've been praying for, but if you want it to continue, you have to give the church back to me. You guys have never let anything happen that you weren't comfortable with ahead of time. Now I want you to sign a blank check and put, give it back to me to make out of it what I want. Now that was a really big problem for me because I started the church so I could have a church that I could stand going to. I started that church for me so I could have a church that I liked. And now God says, give it back to me. And I thought, well, wait, hold on. If I give it back to God, what's he going to do with it? What if he changes it? And isn't when God speaks to us, and he asks us to put him in full control. Isn't that we all, that's what we always ask ourselves. Well, if I do that, what will happen? What will happen to my life? What if I don't like it? But I couldn't for the life of me find a way to say, Jesus, I'm keeping your church for myself. <laughs> so kind of through gritted teeth, I basically said, okay, I give you back the church. You can do whatever you want. And it wasn't long 
He started with me. There were a bunch of things about the way I was leading and the way I was ministering that he wanted to change. So, you know, there were a number, shall we say, of public apology days that happened. And uh, then he, he got after us about our attitudes towards women and the Holy Spirit in the women. Like he did not like our attitude. That had to change. And then he changed our worship, the way we did worship. And then he changed the way we did small groups. And then he changed our leadership structure. You know, I was talking to my dad. My dad was a pastor at the end of the first year. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't think he liked our church very much. <laughs> like we gave the church back to him and he pretty much changed everything. But it was so much better. And has continued to be so much better. We've had to continually keep saying yes to him and give it back to him over and over and over again. There have been some really big surprises along the way. You know, the church that it became was not the church we envisioned up front. It was so far beyond what we imagined, beyond our wildest dreams. Somebody asked me a few years ago, have you achieved your dreams for your life? And I just laughed. Sort of like, oh, we left that behind so long ago. It, I, like, it's not even worth talking about. Like, you, you see, because what God, what God has in mind for us, as the scripture says, is beyond imagining. Not in future life after death. I'm talking about right now, in our time, in our place. But you have to give it all back to him. And you know, when we give it all back to God, we no longer have to live in fear or anxiety. Which is the condition of our time, is it not? Because we've just gone through something that proved to us that we were not in control. And we're still not in control. But we know who is. And if you give it all back to the one who is in control, you need fear nothing. So that's the first thing. We have to keep giving it all back to him. Our life, our career, our church, our ministry, whatever it is. And we have to keep doing that so that he might have full control. Second, we have to learn to wait upon him. There's this thing that they did, the 24-hour-a-day prayer meeting. You know, there was a waiting there. And as they waited on the Lord, at key moments, God intervened and did things and sent them in different directions and gave them new visions. But it wasn't like every time. There was a waiting involved. This waiting means living in dependence upon God. Am I not right that that's like one of your key pillars of living dependence upon God here at this church? Like, that's the thing. You know, uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite verses is John 5, 19, where Jesus says to the religious leaders, the son can do nothing of himself, but only what he sees the father doing. 
In other words, Jesus lives only in complete dependence himself. If that's true for him, how much more is that true for us? So instead of just doing what we think is a good idea, perhaps we should wait and find out what he thinks is a good idea. You know, uh, <clears throat> very early on when we started, we were all just a bunch of university students, really, or just post-university. And I, I see that you get a lot of that kind of action here. You know, people come here for university and then they just get stuck here. They, they stay here because God's doing something here. And so that was us. We had a bunch of, you know, but inevitably, guess what happens? They meet each other, they fall in love, and the next thing you know, you've got a room full of kids in the front. <laughs> and, and it's sort of like, well, we need somebody to, like, lead the kids. And our first thought was not one of dependence on the Lord. It was 100% human effort. Well, you know, Dave over there, He's, a, he's in seminary. He needs a part-time job. Let's just hire him part-time to do the kids. And, uh, you know, everybody, everybody will be happy. And Dave said yes, and so he took the job. And after six months, he came back and he says, I'm quitting in six months. He gave a six-months warning. He says, I've decided I'm not called to children. In fact, I've decided I'm not called to be a pastor at all. <laughs> he was going in a completely different direction. And then I realized, oh, we need somebody who's called by God. We need somebody who's picked by God, not just, you know, some warm body that we stick in there by posting a job opening. But that meant we had to wait and pray. And we waited and we prayed and we waited and we prayed. And the months were ticking off. We were down to like two months before D-Day disaster day <laughs> and uh, I was getting frantic you know it was like I was getting reduced to the lay on the floor and cry out to God kind of praying and we went to this somebody invited a bunch of us over for sort of a little after church dinner thing with sandwiches and soup and we were all there. There were about 30, 40 people in the room. And somebody said, let's, let's go around the room and everybody share um, their dream for their life that they've never told anybody. And I thought, oh, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> like, they're not going to tell the truth. And some of it's going to be embarrassing. Like, you know, like... You know those idle programs where the first week people have this dream and it's sort of like clearly obvious that it's never going to happen? <laughs> I thought, this is going to be awful, but it wasn't my party. And so off we went. They started going around the room. And they got to this one woman, and her name was Eloise. Now, Eloise was an African-American woman. We didn't have at that point very many. We have many African-Americans in our church now, but... She was one of the beginning pioneers, and she was an unusual woman in that she had a PhD and was a vice president at a Fortune 500 company in Chicago. Uh, she was at the top of her career, incredibly successful. She got picked up 
for her work commute and a limousine sent by the company so that she didn't have to exert any energy in driving a car, even though she had a really nice luxury car. And she had like, you know, three PAs or four PAs that helped her do her job. And just, just like, like living a kind of life most of us couldn't even imagine. So it gets to her and she says, my dream for my life is I'd like to work for Steve, namely me. And I think it has something to do with children. My eyes about popped out of my head. I was like gasping for breath. Nobody else in the room even knew that the guy we had was resigning. Nobody knew we were praying. She didn't know. We hadn't told people that he's quitting. We didn't. It was a secret. And we were just praying and asking God to tell somebody. And I thought, my gosh. I could that, did I just hear what she just said? Like, could God be calling her to like, lead our children like somebody like that would god love our kids that much <laughs> then i started thinking about the pay we were going to offer <laughs> and the not being picked up by the limousine <laughs> that was involved and you're not going to be written up in any success magazines now. And uh, I thought, I can't do it. Like, I can't, I don't know how to even raise the subject. How can I ask somebody to walk away from all of that? So one Sunday, I'm praying again. And I'm saying, and I finally just said, God, if you want her to be our children's pastor, you're just going to have to tell her yourself because I can't do it. <laughs> And it wasn't but like 10 seconds, and the phone rang, and it was her. And she said, I've had two dreams every night this week, and I felt like God said I needed to tell you my dreams. And I thought, this is it. Like, God answered my prayer before I even prayed it. I said, tell me your dreams. So let's see if you can interpret these dreams. These are the easiest dreams you've ever heard to interpret, okay? You can't miss the meaning. The first dream is there's an airplane trying to take off from Chicago, but it can't get off the ground because it has a missing part. And so it has to taxi down the highway to her parents' home in Kentucky, which is another state, several hundred miles away, to get the missing part. That's dream number one. Like, there's a missing part, and it comes from your parents' house. Dream number two, Jesus takes her into her grandmother's house and takes her into the basement, and it's filled with children, and he says, you're to pray over these. And I said to her, well, you don't know, but Dave is resigning, and we've been praying for months for God to call somebody to be our children's pastor. She started screaming on the other end, and she walked away from all, as, as, like Moses, the treasures of Egypt, walked away from it, served our children for 25 years, okay, 25 years. She's retired now, but she raised a whole generation. There's a, you know, that are now, have grown up and become church planters and leaders in our church and, you know, all over the, I mean, it's been an incredible thing. And my point is simply that when you wait, 
and let God do it his way instead of rushing in. He gives you better stuff. <laughs> he gives you better stuff. And great things happen. But you have to be willing to wait. Lastly, we have to continually keep saying yes and taking risks to do things that don't exactly make sense. You know, uh, in the early days, I used to go to the local university and there was a, a CU group there, a Christian union group, and I would sit in the back and figure out who the leaders were, and then I would go and be, make friends with the leaders and offer to mentor them. And they would end up in our church, and then they would bring all the rest of the students. That was how we built our church up. And uh, <clears throat> so, and I could pass in those days because I actually looked like a student. I couldn't get away with that now, I don't think. Anyway, uh, one week I went there, and uh, I was sitting in the back, and a guy comes in sitting next to me, and he is sick. He is really sick. Like, he's got the worst cold you've ever seen. Like, he's shaking, and he's sweating, and, you know, there's snot coming out, and, and he's coughing. And, and I'm thinking, why is he here and not in bed, and why is he sitting next to me? You know, and I'm just kind of a little bit annoyed by the whole thing. And, and, and then I just felt this prompting from God, just the slightest nudge, like, why don't you pray for him? So, uh, okay. So I leaned over and I said, you know, can I pray for you? And you're cold. And he kind of gave me a funny look but said, oh, well, all right. And so I prayed for him. And the guy was like instantly healed of everything. Like, in like 15 seconds, it was all gone. He was like complete, the only cold I've ever prayed for that got healed. I've seen more cancers healed than colds. But this guy got healed of this cold on the spot, right there. And it turned out he was an exchange student from Turkey, from a Muslim background. So he became a believer, follower of Jesus. Then he found a woman there who was also from Turkey and started bringing her, and she found Jesus. Well, then she went back to Turkey and there found another little group of university students who had also come to faith, and they were meeting in secret on the grounds of the Swedish consulate where the Turkish police couldn't disrupt their meetings. And, uh, but they didn't know anything about the power of the Spirit. The next thing I know, I was invited over there to teach them about the power of the Spirit and healing and all that stuff. Long story short, that led to the establishment of several new churches. We now have like six vineyard churches in Turkey. Those churches in turn started another church in Baku, Azerbaijan. Meanwhile, in Turkey on one of those trips, we met a guy who was ministering to Iranian refugees. And he ended up... Um, uh, moving to Tajikistan, which is uh, the country just north of Afghanistan, and they speak a variation of uh, Farsi, the, the language they speak in Iran. And he started planting churches there. And so then we got, I found myself like going 
to Tajikistan to minister to them and teach them. And then, while we were there, a guy from Iran came, and he was impacted. Long story short, he married one of the women from our church, and the two of them went back into Iran and planted hundreds of house churches until eventually they got caught and arrested, and there's a whole long story um, how we got them out. But it's like you start with this little thing, like, I'm just going to pray for this guy's cold. And it just, that leads to this, which leads to this, which leads to this, which it starts something that happens over a period. It starts a chain that continues to go in directions you could never imagine. When I say living a life beyond human explanation, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. The key is... You've got to keep giving control. You've got to wait, and then you have to take the risk when he nudges you. So, let's just take a minute right now. There are things that some of you need to give back to God while we're sitting here just now. Your family your career, your ministry, your church, whatever it is, anything that you would hold on to, take this moment now to give it back to him. That's the first step. Just tell him right from your seat right now and give it back to him.